This morning's scripture comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 2 and 12 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So I saw this headline this, morning, this week that uh, caught my attention. I thought it was a good one. Uh, I'll show the image up here for you. Uh, this Cathay Pacific Airlines recognized that on one of their planes they spelled their name wrong. A little embarrassing. So someone posted this picture online that they took out on the, on the tarmac, and they actually kind of retweeted it or whatever. They're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's embarrassing. Um, they spelled the name of their own company wrong. Well, this month we're going to be paying attention to what the Bible reveals about our identity. And... Spelling matters. This is kind of the, the thing that I want us to understand, that spelling matters. Now, I have a name that when I say it, say to a stranger, they often ask for clarification. So I say, oh, my name's Brandon. And they say, oh, is that like with an E or with an A? And so there's this thing. And occasionally I want to pull a night at the museum and say, actually, it's Brunden, you know, like, and pronounce it differently. But uh, there are other names like this, of course. Uh, a few of them I have up here for us to think about. Maybe you're a Vicky, and, and it's like a Y or an I-E. And, and if you're a Vicky, then you understand my dilemma because, like, the alternate spelling is it's just offensive. Like, why would anyone spell their name differently? Or maybe uh, Evelyn. We have some little babies in our church, and one is Evelyn with an N, and one is an Evelyn with two Ns. And, and they're going to, like, grow up and kind of look at each other and be like, eh, you know? Like, or, or maybe, you know, you're David, and someone calls you Dave, and you're just like, no, it's actually David. And then they just refuse, and they keep calling you by the short form. Names matter. They matter. Spelling our name right is important to us. And it's important when it comes to our spiritual health as well. It seems simple enough, but the reason that we're talking about this is that we frequently make mistakes. People make mistakes. We make mistakes about how to spell our own name, and it doesn't sit well with us. And so we're talking about our identity and who God has told us we are, how he has spelled our name, so to speak. And we want to make sure that we get it right. Well, last week we were in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7, and in chapter 7, Paul goes on this kind of spiel at the end where he, he talks about this struggle that he has to live well. He says, you know, I try to do the right things, and, and I just can't seem to get them right. And then I try to avoid the wrong things, and I keep doing those things, and this is just a mess. And it's at the end of this kind of uh, rambling that he goes on and begins chapter 8. He says, therefore, so in light of what I've just said, all of this, this struggle to do the right thing and to avoid doing the wrong thing, therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's this beautiful response. He talks about how deeply he's struggling, and then he reminds himself and everyone else who's listening and reading along that there's no condemnation. So far this month, we've reminded ourselves that we have been reconciled to God. This is part of our identity, that we are no longer slaves to sin. This is part of our identity, 
Paul writes in Romans 8 too, the spirit who gives life has set you free. And so if we can be clear about who we are at the start of each day, the chances of living the life that we have been created and called to live will be just that much greater. And so it's along the same line of seeking clarity about our true identity as followers of Jesus that we're going to explore through this morning's reading. But before we do, uh, as I always do when our kids uh, are away camping, I got some photos to share with you. So we have some junior pitch photos. So we've got a dozen or so of our junior youth that are out camping this weekend. A beautiful day yesterday, a little chilly overnight, so hopefully they bundled up. Um, the next one, I think they're playing some games, and you see kind of what their service looks like. Uh, and we actually have a little video, so we can maybe get the sound on for this. Uh, just It's a real short one, but let's play this video. Here's our, here's our youth. Oh, that's awesome. They're having a good time. They're having a good time. It's a great season of life. Adolescence. What is it? Adolescence is about shedding our childhood and preparing to embrace adulthood. That's like the overarching theme of these junior high and high school years. Um, Actually, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, Jude drove with me um, to to drop Owen off back at school at McMaster, and uh, he was just overwhelmed. He'd never been to a university dorm before, and so we drop him off, and, and as we're leaving, I'm like, what do you think? He's like, this is cool. And he's like, he says, uh, he says, it's like you're living with all of your friends in this little city with no adults. <laughs> At that point, I realized that Jude will not go to university in Waterloo. <laughs> the seed has been sown. You know, so there's a, a transition to this stage of life, right? And there's plenty to gain. There's, there's plenty to gain, the excitement, the, you know, the good times. There's lots, of, lots to gain. But there's also something that is lost during this transition, right? There's something that's lost during this transition from childhood into adulthood. I think about the old TV commercial from when I was a kid anyway. Some of you will remember it. I don't want to grow up because if I did, I couldn't be a Toys R Us kid. And it's this like message in our minds that growing up, you lose something. You give up something valuable when you grow up. Now, if you have children yourself, or maybe you have a niece or nephew or something like that, you get to relive a little bit of it when you go back to Toys R Us before it closed this spring. But you got to go back to it, and I can remember like when Owen was young, I would go to the Toys R Us, and I would linger probably a little longer than he cared to in the Star Wars section, and I'm just like reliving my childhood. I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is fun. But you you do let go. But there's something about this childhood that kind of lingers. It sticks with us. Those formative years, they they don't ever fully disappear. An element of our child self travels along with us through the years and eventually even as the decades go by. And so here I am, a 41-year-old man with the occasional stubbornness of my 2-year-old self, whininess of my 5-year-old self, and social awkwardness of my 11-year-old self. They're all still, still here with me, part of the life that I'm living now. I read a book at the end of the summer by Alain de Botton, a British philosopher and author, and he was writing a book about the challenges of living in relationship with someone who has their child self still living along with them. And he says, like, this happens for every one of us. We bring these, our childhood experiences along with us, and how difficult it is for us to interact with these people. He says, it's a wonderful thing to live in a world where so many people are nice to children. It would be an even better one if we lived in one where we were a little nicer to the childish sides of one another. Like, what a great world it would be if we could just acknowledge that we have a little bit of a kid in us and we can treat each other like that. He talks about the challenge of interpreting a person's, say, grumpiness or selfishness with maximum generosity, acknowledging the childlike fear or confusion or just exhaustion that still lingers all the years later. 
I can remember when I was in middle school, uh, one of the most frequent things that I would hear from the girls in my class was, Brandon, you're so immature. And I would hear this from multiple girls. And I remember one of the, I don't remember which one it was, but I remember one of the times the thought came to my mind, no, I don't think I'm immature. I think I'm 11. Like, I was just like, the, the thought came to me, I think this is actually what an 11-year-old boy acts like, you know, because everyone else I see acts the same as me. But so we're not talking about immaturity. We're not talking about an adult who is not willing to be responsible for their life and who just wants to continually act like a 16-year-old for the rest of their life. We're talking about um, people who, who are just human. We're talking about this human experience of allowing our child self to kind of grow up with us. But even beyond how we're willing to treat others, are we willing to treat them with maximum generosity? The real challenge may be to accept that in many ways, we're looking for someone to treat us like a child, to cut us a little slack, to just give us that unconditional love and acceptance that maybe we got in our own childhood. Batan writes again, we are so alive to the idea that it's patronizing to be thought of as younger than we are, that we forget that it's also at times the greatest privilege for someone to look beyond our adult self in order to engage with and forgive the disappointed, furious, inarticulate child within. What a blessing it would be if people could just look past the, what they see on the outside and realize who we are as a whole. Well, this is at least part of what I want us to hear as we reflect on Paul's claim at the end of this passage from Romans that we are God's children. Now, in chapter 8, Paul returns again to the theme that we talked about last week, that by faith we have put to death the misdeeds of the body, a decision that leads to what he calls life. Romans 8, 14, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. If you want to have some entertainment, just kill time uh, someday, Google the words like people who look like their parents. And so I got some celebrity versions here, so people you'd be familiar with, and it is just uncanny how much these people look like their parents. Um, and the next slide has some more here. Uh, like I, Ice Cube and his son, they're like the same person. I don't know what's going on there. Um, but my favorite is uh, Clint Eastwood's son. Um, like, who doesn't want to grow up and look like Dirty Harry? And he does, exactly. It's just, uh, anyways, he won the genetic lottery, I guess. But Paul's not talking about an external, like, resemblance here. He's not saying, like, you're God's children, so you look exactly like God. He's talking about something different, an awareness of the relationship that you have with God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, the Jews would have thought of themselves as the biological children of God. They've always been God's people. They knew that. But as the church expanded, it was important for new believers to know how much they belonged, all right? So you've got this nation of people who are like, yeah, we're God's people. That's obvious. But Paul is saying, no, 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 like, like everyone has been brought into this family by faith. In another one of his letters, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 5, he writes this beautiful flowery passage. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Such a beautiful statement. Now, I don't know exactly what Paul meant by the word predestined. There are different ways for us to read and understand that. But I do know, at least to a large degree, what he meant by in love. I know what it's like for someone to act in love, what it's like for a parent 
or for a friend or for a colleague to, to act sacrificially, to put another's needs before them, for someone to e express uh, commitment and fidelity to someone. I know what it's, it's like because I've experienced it and I, I try to dish it out myself as well. And so this sentence begins in love. This whole concept of, of adoption to sonship, of being brought into God's family, it's as a result of and it flows out of God's deep love for us. Adoption is the intentional, proactive embrace of love. And again, we, don't, we can imagine what this, this idea of predestined means, but there's something intentional, there's something proactive about God's love for us. Well, the passage goes on in 8.15. We, we read the first part. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him, Paul writes, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, this word Abba is difficult to translate, um, but it's a term of familiarity. It might be something similar to dad. It's not a formal title. It's, a, it's an intimate title. It's something that's meant for within, like a, like a family relationship. So we call out Abba, Father. Now, I'm well aware, and Melissa has mentioned this already this morning, that imagining God as a father is problematic for some of us. Um, depending on our family background, some of us, when we hear words like this, and even when we sing lyrics to songs like this, it can be a challenge and a difficulty. I'm aware of that, particularly those who've had a negative relationship with a father, or maybe no relationship at all, and so this concept of God being a father doesn't even register. I was thinking about it this week, but at the same time, I was struck at how often Jesus, who certainly would have been at least as aware as I am about this reality, used this name for God over and over again. Like, if you look at the New Testament, the Gospels, I mean, Jesus referred to God as Father all the time. And so there's something significant about this, that maybe he wanted to make the, the illusion in the case of healthy parent, father, and child relationships, but my guess is that Father and child relationships were just as messed up in the first century as they are today. And so I think there was something redemptive in his use of this word, that the relationship between father and children is so often broken that Jesus wanted to use this to redeem those relationships. And so I think it's important for us to keep that in mind this morning. And he used the name father at his risk to his own personal safety. In John 5, 18, speaking about the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, it says that they tried all the more to kill him not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, when we hear that, that doesn't, like, ring true to us. We don't say, well, he calls God his father, so he's not saying he's the same person. They thought that that's what he was claiming. But that level of intimacy with God was basically saying you're on the same page as God. But Jesus not only referred to God as his father, but then he went and says to his disciples, this is then how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Jesus teaches each of us to learn how to address God as Father. In this prayer taught by Jesus, in this letter written by Paul, we're invited to approach God as a child approaches a loving parent with complete trust or by faith. In John chapter 1, the gospel says, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. But can we trust this Abba Father? Will God truly accept us with open arms? 
I'm reading a book right now, it's an autobiography, and the author is writing about an experience um, fairly recent in his life when he uh, went to pick up his daughter, his young daughter from kindergarten, and they hopped on the city bus to come home. And while they were on the bus, she threw up all over. And parents of young children will be able to identify this. And maybe those of you who don't have children have seen this happen on a city bus, and you can identify it in your own way. <coughs> well, this is how he explains the experience. The stench filled my nostrils. Vomit was dripping slowly off my jacket. But it was neither disgusting nor uncomfortable. On the contrary, I found it refreshing. The reason was simple. I loved her. And the force of that love allows nothing to stand in its way, neither the ugly, nor the unpleasant, nor the disgusting, nor the horrible. I think it's beautiful. I shared this with someone this week, and they said, well, he's a better parent than I am. And I realized, yeah, okay, fair enough, yeah. We would all be embarrassed, and it would be disgusting, and we'd be like, you know, having the gag reflex ourselves, right? But regardless of how ugly or unpleasant or disgusting or horrible we may be, we are loved. And the force of God's love allows nothing to stand in its way. And that's the beauty of this little story here. Jesus once said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And there's something about it that we've got to wrap our heads around, that it's not when we're perfectly behaved and well-dressed and the rest of it that we really click with God as the Father, but it's while we're throwing up in public on the city bus that his love is in full force. Don't go thinking that your respectability or your moral perfection will melt the Father's heart. Because I, I have an idea that, that God's story of our lives is more like this. Like when my child threw up all over me, I was like, oh, so refreshing. It's great. Okay, so another, another parenting story. Uh, this one from the tail end of Marilyn Robinson's beautiful novel, Gilead, uh, is a story about um, uh, this complex family dynamics. And, and this particular passage, the narrator is writing about um, the patriarch of this family. And uh, the way the family dynamics go is that there was this one son who was estranged from the family. He went off and, and lived by the beat of his own drummer. And the rest of the family were basically these kind of well upstanding citizens. And, and this is how the narrator, part of this family, reflects on the old man. Old Botton, if he could stand up out of his chair, out of his decrepitude and crankiness and sorrow and limitation, would abandon all those handsome children of his, mild and confident as they are, and follow after that one son whom he has never known, whom he has favored as one does a wound, and he would protect him as a father cannot, defend him with the strength he does not have, sustain him with a bounty beyond any resource he could ever dream of having. If Botten could be himself, he would utterly pardon every transgression, past, present, and to come, whether or not it was a transgression in fact, or his to pardon. He would be that extravagant. But keep in mind that as beautiful as these words are, as, as powerful as an image that this paint, they paint, they're still just human words. And they're trying to describe the beauty of a human relationship, the love of a human father. Now, of course, it wouldn't be fair to talk about being a child of God without reference to Luke chapter 15 and Jesus' powerful story that we know as the prodigal son. It's a story in which a rebellious young child says, I'm sick of living with my parents, and he demands the inheritance, that his father gives him an inheritance, which was just an incredible insult and affront 
to his father's place. But he demands his inheritance, and he, and he heads off to the city, and he blows the whole thing in this wild living, and eventually finds himself like with no way forward. And he comes crawling back to his family home. And as Jesus tells the story, he doesn't even get all the way to the house because the father is waiting, watching at the window, and he runs down the laneway like a fool and falls to his knees and embraces his son. And so we have this beautiful picture of this prodigal son being embraced by the father. And Jesus is trying to let the listeners know about the love that God has for people. But he's really not just speaking about the prodigal son. That's what we call the story. But the story is really about the other son standing up there in the shadows. The son who didn't understand what it meant to be a son. The son who stayed home and did everything right. And when he sees his father literally killing the fattened calf for this prodigal, wasteful son of his, he says, Dad, what's up? Like, I've been here the whole time. You never threw a party like this for me. And the father says to him, and this is the point of Jesus' story, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. You don't have to pit yourself against someone else. You don't have to be upset at the grace and the mercy that I'm showing to them because I have always given it and will always give the same to you. Any notion that you are valued less by your Father in heaven than the person beside you must be washed away once and for all. That's what it means to understand our identity as children of God. In the words of Leo Tolstoy in his epic novel, War and Peace, Father says all his children are alike. Whichever finger's pricked, it hurts the same. There's no difference in God's sight. Whether you stay faithfully in his house your whole life or walk away and wander, like God loves us and welcomes us and celebrates us with open arms. A healthy understanding of our identity in Christ invites us to see ourselves as children of a loving father. Are you ready to once again be loved like a child? I'm going to invite our band to come on up, and then we're going to close with the song in a few minutes. But I want to go back to the tail end of our reading, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 reads, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The message, I think, unpacks this a little bit for us. God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. And that's what I want to see happen this morning for sure, every time we gather. Not that we like learn some things, but that the Spirit of God connects with our spirit, the core of who we are, and helps us understand our true identity. This is what it means to gather and recenter ourselves around the story of Jesus. We're trying to understand who we are. Again, as, as I read a quote from last week, Christian worship is a re-narration of who we are and whose we are. We are children of God. We are children of a loving Father. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. Beautiful words. And yet, as you can tell by the screen, it's not the full verse. And I wanted to end there. It's a good place to end, and then we sing a song. But there's this little thing that Paul says at the end, and I'm like, why didn't I just stop the reading short? And I was thinking about it, because the verse goes on. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And it's like, oh, it's this beautiful passage about our children of God and God loves us and we call him Abba, Father. And then he goes and says, if we share in his sufferings, why do we have to bring that into it? And I think it's actually really important. Because if we have this idea that being a child of God means that nothing will ever go wrong in our lives, then what happens when something goes wrong? And if we have this idea that God being a loving Father, he's only loving for us when everything goes according to plan then what happens when it doesn't? Because it hasn't gone to plan, according to plan, for any single person in this room. 
if we share in his sufferings, so we may also share in his glory. Alain de Baton again, he says, the role of being a good parent brings with it one large and very tricky requirement, to be the constant bearer of deeply unfortunate news. Because as that child grows up, they're going to experience more pain, and they're going to experience rejection, and they're going to experience crisis, and the parent has to be there and call it what it is and walk with that child. And the deep struggles that we go through in life are not proof that God has abandoned us and is not a loving father, but they are reminders that the child inside each of us still needs the arms of an all-loving father to collapse into. I'm going to invite you to stand. I want to close by reading from 1 John 3, 1, and we're going to sing a song together, and hopefully we're able to sing these words with passion and from a deep place, and maybe even for some people this morning, singing these words maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long time. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, the Bible says, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are.